Welcome to the weekly teaching podcast of Grace Church in Northwest Arkansas, recorded live at 2828 Crossover in Fayetteville, Arkansas. For notes and resources accompanying this teaching, visit gracechurchnwa.org. Thanks for listening. We're glad you're here. My name is Chris Lawson, and I am privileged from time to time to enter into the conversation at Grace Church in our teaching ministry. And I hadn't planned on saying this, but I want to, because Alex mentioned that we're a little bit chill today. And I'm going to suggest that perhaps a few of you are simply exhausted. Exhausted from the demands of the world. Exhausted from the demands of your professional lives, the school year, the endless cycle of taking care of children and family members, brothers, sisters, parents. And if you're in a service profession, you may be taking care of people all day in a different format. But I'm going to suggest that because I think that is the nature of the world we live in. And interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Colossians, is speaking to a concern he has about certain voices in culture that would call upon human tradition and human cycle of work and rituals and so forth that might detract from what Christians are called to be and what Christians are called to do, which is to call upon the name of Jesus, to believe the name of Jesus, to find strength in the Holy Spirit, and really nothing else. Nothing else matters. So I'm going to just put that out there and say to you, I hope that our conversation today, if that's where you are, exhausted by the world, I hope you will find some encouragement in this letter to the Colossians. I, want to do thank, I do want to thank the teaching team and the elders at Grace who support a teaching team that allows many voices to enter into the conversation. There's a great word in, the book, in this letter to the Colossians, a Greek word, sumbibatsu, which means unity and love, or knit together in love. And we're going to be talking about that today as we go through this letter. It means grasping the truth through intervening or intertwined voices and ideas that allow people to get on board with the truth. The teaching team is a microcosm of that truth in getting on board, in grasping the truth. I thank all of the members of that teaching team because they support this ministry. I will specifically mention those who got up at the crack of dawn on Wednesday to meet at 6.30. They were very helpful to me and very supportive of me. I'll start with Feli. This was a particularly disjointed week for me where I found myself out of town a lot, going to different places and trying to meet different kinds of challenges and coming home and really just kind of collapsing at the end of the week. So I relied upon her to help me with some of the research for this. So thank you, Feli. 
Uh, Alex Cornette was there. You know, Alex is somebody we could see just even a snapshot on a Sunday morning and say, what a talented person. But this is only the tip of the iceberg for Alex. It's a big tip, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. And what he does in the larger community, in small groups and large groups, through the Soderquist Center and so forth, his ministry is absolutely exciting. He does seem to have this deal where he seems to be running into things on his bike. And sometimes it's asphalt. So we, we, we need to pray for Alex to be safe so that he can continue to minister and to his wife, the teacher of the year. I want to thank uh, Lucian and uh, Julie, Isaac, for being there this week. Both of them are great teachers themselves, but great encouragers too. And in particular, Julie led me to a particular point of Greek philosophy that has a bearing on what we'll be talking about today, which I will get to. And then Randall Waldron for being there who has in a very short period of time become a real hero to me, although he would never let me give him that title. Most of the people who are as brilliant as Randall are difficult to talk to because they're, they're up here and the rest of us are down here. But Randall has a gift and he tempers his intelligence with kindness, and a great sense of humor. And in this era of vicious and divisive speech, at a social level and a political level, I am so grateful for people who are intelligent and have an overriding sense of grace and a sense of humor. So, Randall, would you be interested in running for president? <laughs> Please, it's not too late. Now, I have to say this too. As I get ready to go into this letter to the Colossians, um, the name of this title, the title of this lesson today, Smooth Rhetoric and the New Moon. You see, smooth rhetoric is, is something that's actually stated in this letter. It's also translated as a fine-sounding argument or a well-reasoned argument in some of your texts. And so what I bring to this is instant humility because what I do for a living is smooth rhetoric. What I do for a living is an attempt for other people and other people's interests to put together arguments that sound good enough to persuade judge or jury. And of course, the story always sounds better when I really believe in it. And I do. I come to take the place of the narrative of my clients in attempting to make these arguments. But as we go through this, you're going to hear those words. Paul is concerned about smooth rhetoric and the influence it might have on the early Christians here at Colossae. And so I want you to know I'm very humble about that because I know about smooth rhetoric. In fact, 
if you're a lawyer and you're trying a case to a jury, what you hope to achieve on the front end and what is really absolutely essential is that when you walk into the courtroom and you begin to formulate that narrative, you have to know that none of those jurors know anything about you. That's why I don't have a Facebook page. Because I don't want any juror to have a preconceived notion about who I am, what I believe, or anything else. In other words, everything has to depend on how I present that story in that courtroom at that time and attempt to have instant credibility with people who don't even know me. And so I bring to this concern of Paul a very real-life understanding of how well-reasoned arguments, as good as they sound, may not be the truth. And Paul is concerned. I want to start today with what I will call a call to Scripture, a call to teaching. Because I'm going to have the microphone for a few minutes, and that's all that means. I don't have the answers. I am supported by people on the teaching team. But what I would call the chemistry of truth when we talk about Scripture is that when people of a humble faith can take the Word of God and submit themselves to the Holy Spirit, and they may not be perfect in how they consider that Scripture, but there is a chemistry of truth that can happen with the Holy Spirit present, and only if the Holy Spirit is present. We witnessed last week, if you were here, a great sermon about Pentecost from A.J. Swoboda. And I'm going to read, before I start to talk about the Colossians, I'm going to read from that sermon that Peter delivered at Pentecost as he quoted the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let us pray. Father, we are your sons and daughters adopted into the family. And we pray for your spirit in this time and this place as we meditate on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Because this is a letter and not a narrative, uh, it would probably be best if we read the whole letter from start to finish to the, Coloss- to the Colossians. Uh, The interest of time will not allow us to do that, but what I propose to do is read through chapter 2 at once, 
which is different for me because I like to explain as I go. And I may stop a few times, but I'm going to be reading from chapter 2 of Colossians in an attempt to understand what is Paul's agony, what is Paul's concern as he sits in prison in Rome facing trial before Nero. He's, he's writing to a group of people that he likely has never seen before. And he's concerned about them. Chapter 2, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures, all wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, smooth rhetoric. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. I can't help but stop and just point out a few things in these first few verses. First, the very first words out of not you know, in the letter, I want you to know how much I am struggling. Some of your texts will say, I am contending for you. The Greek word here, the, the root word, is agon, A-G-O-N, from which we get the word agony. So whereas in chapter 1, Paul has encouraged and lifted up the supremacy of Christ in order to say, I know you are with me in this, and yet I have this agony for you. And then the second thing I want to point out to you in verse 2, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. The word I mentioned, sum babatsu, or babatzo, grasping the truth through intervening voices. We're talking about unity in agape love, which is not based on emotion. We are the champions. We've got all this right. It's not based on emotion, but it's instead something that is knit together by design by God as he gets us on board. Thirdly, I want to point out to you that Paul mentions the mystery of those things that are hidden, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is a direct response to something you're probably familiar with called Gnosticism. The Gnostics like to use this word, apocryphus, to describe the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge as if there was something apart from Jesus that was necessary to know and to embrace some hidden knowledge or truth that needed to be embraced in order to get us to eternal life. And we'll get to this a little bit more as to Paul's concern about these Gnostic heretics. Okay, with that, just bear with me. I'm going to read on through this chapter 2 of this epistle, beginning now in in verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code. Some of your texts will say, blotted out the ink of your indebtedness. With its regulations, that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival like the festival of the new moon, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it? And I'll interject there, being exhausted to it. Why do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Wow, I don't know if I've ever read that much at one time in this context. Thank you for being with me in that. So let's talk about it. Because I think there are really four questions that we have to answer. And I say we because I don't have the answer. But I want to offer some thoughts. The first question is, why is Paul concerned about Jewish traditions and rituals? Why is he concerned and why does he see that as a threat to the new church, to these new Christians at Colossae. For example, the, the, the celebration of the new moon, the, the word in, on the Jewish calendar for month is moon because they celebrated every month the new moon. They even had someone in ancient times, a watchman 
to watch for the new moon to rise so they could begin their celebration for the new month in glory to God. It was a huge celebration in many contexts. The, the Old Testament speaks of the, the ram's horn and the great celebration. So it was a big deal in their tradition. There are many others that even Paul is either mentioning here by name or he's referring to. And it's not important that we know all the details of those rituals. But why is he concerned? First, I would offer to you that it's a matter of doctrine. If all of these festivals and these rituals are really the foreshadowing of Jesus, the the true Lamb of God, then Jesus' life on earth, his taking on the flesh, his death and his resurrection, has has now fulfilled all of those rituals. And therefore, as a matter of doctrine, I think he wants to state clearly, it is not faith in these ancient traditions by which we live in the kingdom of God, but instead by our faith in Jesus Christ, the living Christ, the Holy Spirit. Secondly, I want to think about with you something I would call the politics of exclusion. And that, to me, is a very personal thing. Maybe you, like me, have been in situations where you are a newcomer to a group. And the people in that group, although they seem to be welcoming you, seem to want to tell a lot of stories about shared experiences in the faith. And I've been in situations where that's made me feel like I'm not really here as a part of this group because I don't have those shared experiences. Let me tell you about a year in my life, 1978, a long, long time ago. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times for me. It started out great. January 1, 1978, and here I could separate the true Razorback fans with what I will call the senior Razorback fans, which is where I am now. Because in January 1, 1978, the Arkansas Razorbacks, huge underdogs, took on the Oklahoma Sooners in the Orange Bowl. Oklahoma was ranked number two. Nobody thought that Arkansas could win. Several of their key players had been suspended for unstated reasons. And I remember that night watching that game as Arkansas just completely annihilated Oklahoma. I was in heaven that night. I thought that was the biggest deal. That the underdog, and I always love the underdog, and the Arkansas Razorbacks who I always love, had overcome all this adversity to win this huge game and got all this attention. So in that respect, it was the best of times. But being 11 years old can be very awkward. And then turning 12 is still awkward. But that year, I had to go to school in sixth grade at a school that was a long way from my neighborhood. And up until that time, I'd been able to walk to school every day. And I loved that. Loved that freedom. But in my hometown, for reasons related to population and demographics, 
The school district had decided to have a sixth grade in one school, and there was one pocket of the city, it was my neighborhood, which was going to be displaced and was going to be required to go to sixth grade on the other side of town in a totally different part of town. So for the first time, I was bused to school. And I hated it. I hated not having the freedom of being able to know when, and then, you know, when I leave and when I come home and what I do along the way is my, my thing. And I hated the bus. But what I hated even more is in that sixth grade school, it was right next to, next to a neighborhood, a suburban neighborhood of children and families that had all grown up together, had many shared experiences together, and in fact, on June the 1st, 1978, Greece was released as a movie, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, and all the kids in that neighborhood had memorized all the lyrics to that, and they were like singing songs, to, you know, between classes, and all the cool guys could be like John Travolta, and all the pretty girls could be like Olivia Newton-John, and they would sing duets, and and I just felt completely lost because I had, I had not seen the movie. I can't sing. I don't know any of these people. And I felt excluded because I did not have a shared experience of the community. Well, let me just submit that perhaps one of Paul's concerns about the rituals and the traditions of the Jewish faith is that those who practice them could have had a shared experience that was very important to their family and their tradition, but unintentionally or intentionally could have excluded people from the vibrant community of faith that was in the present day worshiping Jesus. Third, another thought on this. You remember how last week when A.J. Swoboda talked so eloquently about Pentecost and how the power of the Holy Spirit was visited, you know, right there. And Paul and the other apostles were even given languages that they didn't even know to speak. And 3,000 were saved. And you remember how he kind of climaxed with this really important point that all of this power, you know, it's for us. But it's not for us to control. And so as I reflected on this week, this letter to the Colossians, it occurred to me that it might be true that through rituals and traditions of the Jewish faith, there might have been people in that community and other communities like it who would attempt to control the narrative of the Holy Spirit through their own practice of the ancient traditions. And it is not for us to control it is a power that belongs to the Holy Spirit. There are a few other things that I wanted to mention to you. And one of these relates to the possible concern that Paul had with Greek um, philosophy on the early church. And for this, I give Julie... Isaac credit for helping me to understand this better. And it relates to Gnosticism. The Greek philosophy, in particular, we're talking about Plato, and I, I, don't, I don't 
Listen, I, I'm not trying to be a philosopher here. I'm just telling you some things that I've read. There was a certain concept called um, dualism that was very prominent in Greek philosophy, which said that there is a material world, and then there is the higher form, sort of metaphysical world that we all aspire to be in. And so for the Gnostics, it would be everything about this life is bad. Everything in this world is bad. Everything about my body and this physical world is bad. And I just want to get to the next level. And it's also true for the Greek philosophers too, although they stated it a little bit differently, and it was really neutral to Christianity. It was this same idea. The material is bad. This present day is bad. It is only when we get to the, the eternal loftiness of heaven that we achieve perfection in the forms of this world. And so I think I have a slide for this um, from N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, who is a very well-known British commentator and minister, was responding in particular to this influence of Greek dualism on Western Christianity. He says, the Western tradition, Catholic and Protestant, evangelical and liberal, charismatic and social gospel, that, that covers pretty much the whole gamut, has managed for many centuries to screen out the central message of the New Testament, which isn't that we are to escape the world and go to heaven, but rather that God's sovereign saving rule would come to birth on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is within you, Jesus said. And so perhaps Paul and expresses his concerns about these well-sounding arguments, the smooth rhetoric, was saying, don't be deceived by the Greek culture or the Gnostics who would say, the kingdom of heaven doesn't really have anything to do about the here and now. It's all about mystery and hidden knowledge elsewhere. And Paul wants to say, the kingdom of heaven is now. You see, the Gnostics had a certain fascination with the human imagination, as did Plato. Paul wants to say here, our fascination should be with the mind of God. Our motivation should be to achieve union with the Holy Spirit. And through this idea of sum bibazzo, the unity of this fellowship, we would know the mystery of Jesus because that is where all treasure, that is where all truth resides. So the next question, I think, is who are the people today? I mean, how does this relate to us? Who are the people with this, the well-sounding arguments I'd like to say I'm off the hook. Maybe Kim Patrone, who's also a lawyer, is off the hook. Maybe Randall, a great professor at JBU, is off the hook. But I'm going to say not so fast for any of us. Let me offer to you 
what I believe to be true is that we all tend to be most articulate about the ways and the traditions that are most comfortable to us. And I think it's also a, a feature of human nature that we all tend to gravitate to the people who are the most passionate about the things that are most important to them. Now that can be a good thing. It's not always a bad thing. But I would offer to you that there is at least a good chance in my mind that Paul was concerned that we all be, become too concerned about where we have come from. And with that not fully, not fully engaged in what power the Holy Spirit would bring. Another example I'll give you from my childhood, and I think this is the last one that I will give you. This was the great hymn book war of 1975. You see, I grew up in church, not just like coming to church, but my life revolved around the Baptist church. My mother held the lofty position of church secretary for 25 years at the First Baptist Church of El Dorado, which meant she knew everybody, she knew about every dollar, and she knew about everybody's problems. She knew it all. My daddy, who was a musician, taught piano privately, but he was a great organist, and is a great organist, so he was a part of the worship every Sunday, and that meant Sunday morning, that meant Sunday night, that meant Wednesday night. All those were stock times. You don't depart from those. So my life revolved around the church, but I can remember so clearly as a child in 1975, the church had come to a great watershed moment, which was, do we keep the 1979 Broadman hymnal or do we, excuse me, the 1956 Broadman hymnal, or do we elevate and graduate to the 1975 hymnal? And so, like Baptists do, we had a business meeting. And the business meeting is where everybody airs everything out, and I'll just say all the junk hits the fan, and then we have our deliberations, and you vote, and then hopefully you go home and you forget about it. If people are mad enough, they'll leave and go to the Second Baptist Church. Or if they're even more furious, they'll go to Emmanuel Baptist Church and skip Second Baptist Church altogether. But this is the business meeting that we had, and it was very dramatic to me. Certainly I was a child at the time, but my parents were both very involved in that, particularly my father because he was a church musician had passionate ideas about which edition of the hymnal we should use. And I give him credit, because he was not someone who liked to speak in public, and he spoke his mind, something he really believed in. And I'm, I want to say this, to be gracious about this, I think there maybe is a time and a season for discussions about things like that. But I would say to you as my community and as my family, if we come to the point that we square off in a community like this about whether or not to have a 56 hymnal or a 75 hymnal, we are not going to be fully invested in those moments in the mystery and the Holy Spirit 
And we're going to be divided too, as that church was. Took my parents about five years to get over that. And so I'm going to leave you with some questions, some ultimate questions. How do we achieve sumbibatso in this community? How do we achieve unity? I wish I had a two-sentence answer for that. It's really just two words. Holy Spirit. Because, see, I don't think there's any way we can do it on our own. I think left to our own devices, we divide. We become factions and we become cliques. And I think our, our community has done very well. In fact, Paul was saying to Colossae, you're doing very well, but I just want you to know how concerned I am about how these influences from the world can affect you. So I think it's something good for us to remember and to remind ourselves at all times. Because being Razorback fans or being members of a political party or a social you know, group, for a while they might unite people, but ultimately it is only through Jesus that we are knit together in love. I'm going to ask the worship team to return to us as we enter a new phase of our worship, our last phase. And I have one more ultimate question to ask you. What we do in this phase of worship is that we reflect. We reflect on the scripture. We reflect on the singing because I think even as we sing today, we will be singing in this part of the service words from Colossians, not that I have read or that we've covered, but that speak of the supremacy of Christ. And with our table that is set before us as a communion table, as the ultimate symbol of community, we do not practice exclusion. We say, if you are earnestly seeking Jesus, you are welcome to take communion from this table. And we will not dismiss by rose. We will not have any particular formula for that. You just come as you are and come as you please. We also worship through the passing of the offering basket as a measure of our sacrificial love for one another and for this community. But I want to ask you to consider this one more ultimate question as we have looked at Colossians and the concern that Paul had for the, the impact of culture, the Gnostics and the Greeks, and the exclusionary kind of impact it could have and the divisive impact it could have in the church. My question to you is this. When we live divided, 
when we live marginalized, when we live practicing exclusion based on purely human ideas and classifications, and to broaden the question even more, when we live as condemned people defined by our sin, by our addictions, by our past, do we not live in prison? And with that, I leave you with this sense of the Apostle Paul who is in his prison cell awaiting the condemnation of the world. That he would agonize. That he would want them to know and us to know that we were not designed to live in prison. Not imprisoned by those things that would divide us, but to live in love and life and the kingdom of heaven in the fullness of the unity knit together in love. Thank you for your attention today.